0: From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Arnson This is your news for Friday, August 11th. Moab City Council met on Tuesday to discuss the details of the town's sustainability plan. This is Moab Sustainability Director, Alexi Lamb. As a recap, to follow up on our goals of 100% renewable electricity by 2030 and 80% re- uh, emission reductions by 2040, um, we've undertaken this sustainability action plan with the idea of collaborating and engaging with the community, empowering our community to achieve some of those goals. These are goals that the city has already established, and Lam said they'll incorporate those goals into the final plan the city hopes to reach 100 percent renewable energy in the next seven years with help from a statewide program that was passed last month the program which is coordinated by rocky mountain power is meant to help communities across utah reach their renewable energy goals grand county the city of moab and the town of castle valley are officially part of the program reducing greenhouse gas emissions is also a priority for the city most of moab's emissions come from transportation Imogen Ainsworth, a contractor helping with the plan, suggested some alternative transportation options during the presentation.
1: Electric vehicle adoption and the number of charging stations, mode share, and this concept of a car optional town came up. So how many people are driving um, compared to biking, taking uh, public transportation, that kind of thing, and working towards this idea of a town where people could drive their car here and then leave it. Um, miles of connected multimodal infrastructure came up, and then transportation access and safety.
0: In drafting the plan, Lamb and the contractors said they're focusing on the local community.
1: And we heard loud and clear that community and sort of their local residents, local people, is an important part of the vision for this plan. Similarly, um, concepts around kind of action, actionability of the plan, how can we actually move forward and implement it, buy-in, kind of getting community buy-in and contribution to the plan, making sure that it's inclusive.
0: Lamb and the contractors intend to have the final plan completed by December. More information about the city's sustainability plan can be found in today's show notes. On Tuesday, President Biden announced a new national monument that covers nearly a million acres near Grand Canyon National Park. The monument is intended to protect and conserve areas that are sacred to the indigenous tribes of the region. As KJZZ's Alma C.S. reports, the new monument fulfills the longtime wishes of Native American tribes.
2: On Tuesday morning, Native Americans from the Havasupai and other Arizona tribes welcome President Biden to the historic Red Butte Airfield just a few miles south of the Grand Canyon. Thomas Ayuja is the chairman of the Havasupai tribe. He said the president's visit was cause for celebration for Indigenous communities who spent decades advocating to protect the land near the Grand Canyon National Park. So we've been fighting and fighting, and even though we were kind of defeated, but we never gave up. We continued to fight. We pushed forward interior secretary deb holland the first native american cabinet secretary said the national monument designation marks a new era of collaboration and stewardship between tribal communities and the u.s government arizona congressman raul grijalva said that means tribes will finally have a say on lands they call home the ancestral lands are not forgotten fantasies but realities right across us and that the role of indigenous people in the tribes will be of significance, not window dressing. Biden said the new designation was emblematic of his administration fulfilling longstanding promises to Native American tribes. Many were forced from their ancestral homes in decades past. In his remarks, Biden noted that the very act of preserving the Grand Canyon as a national park had denied indigenous people full access to the land they hold sacred.
3: a time when some seek to ban books and bury history, we're making it clear that we can't just choose to learn only what we want to know. We should learn everything that's good, bad, and the truth about who we are as a nation. That's what great nations do, and we're the greatest of all nations.
2: Some, however, have argued Biden's designation had weakened the nation. Republican lawmakers and the mining industry have touted the area's economic benefits and argued that mining is a matter of national security. The U.S. is heavily reliant on Russia for nuclear fuel. The area Biden designated as a national monument is rich in uranium deposits. Senior Biden officials say existing mining claims will not be affected. Republican state lawmakers like Representative Barbara Parker weren't convinced.
4: Arizona is the second largest mining state in the nation. This is nothing more than going to weaken the strength
2: of Arizona and all that we do. At an emergency legislative hearing in Kingman on Monday evening, Mojave County Supervisor Travis Lingenfelter said tribal concerns that uranium mining would damage their sacred land are overblown. What they're citing is back in the 1940s and the 1950s, way over on the Navajo Nation in Coconino County, um, there were some uranium mines that were not mitigated properly. The EPA had to get involved. That was in the 40s and the 50s. It is not 2023. Biden and tribal leaders say the National Monument designation aims to make sure the mistakes of the last century are not repeated. That was Alma
0: Ciaz reporting for KJZZ. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Grand County Emergency Medical Services is developing a program to support the mental health of EMS workers. Doug McMurdo of the Times Independent speaks with Molly Marcello about their story on how stress impacts first responders.
3: This all has to do with the trauma that paramedics and EMTs, uh, and for that matter, law enforcement, firefighters, first responders, they, they see some pretty pretty horrible things uh, in the course of their jobs. It's, uh, it just goes with the territory. And there's a toll to pay. For seeing all of that, Andy Smith is a veteran uh, uh, first responder. He's the executive director of Grand County Emergency Medical Services, and. Um, he offered Sophia a, a really uh, tremendous uh, interview, very uh, very open, very honest, and um, I think it's a good thing. I know that uh, Moab police and the Grand County Sheriff's are, have also recently made them their staffs, uh, these, the services is available to their staffs as well.
1: Yeah, this is a very comprehensive article um, by Sophia Fisher in the Times Independent on this issue. Now what, you know, mental health services does EMS have available to their staff right now?
3: I imagine right now it's basically limited to counseling. Um, I'm just helping people process what they go through. The important thing is with this is these are former first responders. These are former law enforcement officers. They're former paramedics who are now counselors. And so it's a lot easier to talk about what you go through if the person that you're talking to has actual knowledge, what, what it feels like.
1: Or experience something similar.
3: Right, right. I think it's a lot easier, I think it's a lot easier for for them to let down their guard, you know, and say this This is how I feel, and this is why, and this is, uh, and, and I think that it's, it's a lot, because it's more like peer-to-peer uh, than it is counselor to, uh, to patient. So it's a, I think it's a really uh, awesome program.
1: You know, it sounds like in Sophia's reporting, you know, she writes that the agency um, is trying to take a proactive preventative approach, at least in the words of one of their staff members to mental health services, um, and more details are in this article. Anything else to say about this piece?
3: Anything that you can do to stave off burnout for as long as possible, because you don't want to cut your career short, you know, five five years short of collecting right. a pension or whatever because you just can't can't deal with it anymore you know reporters we we get a lot of trauma too but it's all ours is usually secondhand
1: that's a good point you and i know like the secondhand trauma that can come from writing about incidents that are tragic and difficult and i guess we can only imagine what it is like for people who are responding to those incidents
3: yeah for 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 me i was a, a trial reporter for so long and I've listened to s- to so much uh, horrible testimony and it's affected me profoundly to, to this day. Um, but I wasn't the paramedic or the police officer or the firefighter who saw it with their own eyes. So um, that's, you know, it's just compounded even more so.
1: Right, more on this mental health effort with EMS is in this week's edition of the Times Independent. We want to take us next, Doug.
3: Okay, we have um, a body of a a missing hiker was found. It was the fourth hiker uh, to die so far since May. Three of them uh, have died at um, Arches, as this gentleman did, and one uh, in Canyonlands. And I put this on the front page for a couple of reasons. Uh, Typically, these stories are a paragraph long and they're somewhere inside the paper, unless it's a local um, resident. But I put this on the front page for a couple of reasons. One of them was um, I got a lot more information. Assistant Police Chief Lex Bell put out a a very comprehensive um, statement on on this incident and um, provided me with a a lot of facts that I felt uh, compelled to include in the story. And I also uh, uh, was in contact with his, the, the victim's sister in Texas, um, she, wonderful woman, and he was a, a wonderful person. If you looked at his Facebook page, uh, he was posting, uh, he had his father's cremains with him and he was posting uh, he was he titled all of his posts um travels with neil his father and they had gone to uh, from texas to utah and they'd stopped into the grand canyon and bryce canyon here they are in, in moab and he was just uh just a real thoughtful man a, a, a great writer
1: so this very introspective person this uh writer as you say was traveling around the country with his father's remains and was you know, doing so to honor his father. Yes,
3: they they were on their way to uh, the Sierra Nevada, and I presume, I'm totally presuming here, that uh, that's where he was going to spread those ashes. I also put this on the front pages as a reminder that when you are in Moab, Utah, you need to know where you are health-wise, you need to know where you are period. This is not Disneyland, this is not the Marriott, there's not going to be a concierge come to help you. Um, You know, he had no water. He was off trail. He probably got disoriented. Um, You know, and it's happened to me before. You know, I've gone out there and um, I I brought enough water for the hike I planned, but the hike I planned didn't go as planned. And I was out for uh, 24 hours longer than I had water for. So I, I know what that's like. But just a reminder to people, and I also feel that, Um, We need to be more cognizant of, of climate change. You know, the heat, uh, it's it's not only is it super hot, but it's hotter for more days in a row. And that, that's all climate change. And uh, as you young people say, it hits different. The heat hits different than it used to. It's more oppressive. Um, it really is. It's like there's nothing protecting you from, from that big old ball of fire.
1: Are investigators, are they coming to the conclusion that the heat had something to do with his death then?
3: Well, he... He was taking um, a high-powered diuretic for blood pressure, and, and that doesn't help. But he was also out of water. Uh, he was found sitting up, which um, is not all that unusual. But um, his sister Ruth made a, a comment there at the, at the end that um, we should learn from this. These these deaths happen a lot more frequently than, than we realize, and, and we should learn from it. So if we can have somebody load one more bottle of water before they go on their hike or decide I'm going to wait, to, uh, wait for the sun to get a little lower in the, in the sky and temperatures start dropping before I hit the trail or early in the morning before it gets too hot. But, you know, it's, it's not worth dying for. As beautiful as this country is, it's not worth dying for.
1: Doug, yeah, like you said, this landscape can be quite unforgiving and disorienting especially if you get a little even just a little bit dehydrated and when did this happen Doug? Uh,
3: July 29th was when um, he went missing and July 29th in all likelihood is the day he died and he was found a couple days later some hikers uh called in uh coordinates saying that they uh uh, they smelled death there was a death smell um responders gathered in the uh, uh sand dune arch parking lot and they were planning out their search classic air was up in the air they the hikers had given the coordinates so the uh, ground searchers and, and the air crew discovered the body pretty much simultaneously and it was removed to the parking lot and eventually to uh, the medical examiner's office. Okay.
1: Well, there is a, you know, a long story on this in the Times Independent for more information. Moving on to one more story to Cane Creek Boulevard reconstruction. There's some news
3: yes good news uh, for people who travel down king creek and even for those who don't the uh, city council moab city council on tuesday night agreed to the parameters of a loan from the permanent community impact board for uh, 4.5 million dollars the bond the uh, cib will purchase that bond And uh, the city has 18 years to pay it back. Uh, The interest will never go over 2%. So that's a pretty attractive terms. Mm -hmm. And they also accepted a 3.7 million grant also um, provided by the Community Impact Board. You know, Curtis Wells, former uh, Grand County counselor, is the chair of the the community impact board and then they met in june 28th and um i'd like i don't know what influence curtis had but i'm sure he advocated for it and that helped because um, and i apologize i did not get the man's name he's from zions bank um but he said you know kudos to the city because um you don't generally get these this kind of deal um from the cib that's funded as you know through mineral royalties and leases and um, uh, usually the the big money goes to you into county that area because that's where a lot of that work is going on so it was very good deal for us the city still needs to figure out where they're going to come up with another 800,000 plus for for their share but the, the big deal is it's going to be a complete reconstruction from highway 191 to almost 500 west just short of 500 500 west and we're talking new storm drains um all the old chip sill and crack sill that they've done over the years I imagine they'll probably take care of even the potholes.
1: Yeah, you know, I recently spent some time with a few folks from Public Works to see what their lives and jobs were like. And, you know, doing complete streets seems like what where it's at, where you were just saying, like, where everything from below the road and above is done all at once. Um, so you don't just do, like... asphalt rebaving and then have to go and replace the sewer line
3: right that that's i thought they were really smart and i i this that policy was in effect when they did the huge improvement on 100 west Mm It took forever and they ran into so many problems because they had no idea. There's, you know, a hundred years of infrastructure under the underground and they ran into pipes that went nowhere. They ran into storm drains that weren't hooked up or were collapsed. Just all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah.
1: So the city got some loan money, some grant money. They still have to identify where an additional around $800,000 will come from. Do we know when the timeline is? Like when do they want to start? I'm
3: glad you asked that. There's going to be um a public hearing on september 12th and um that that brings me to another point these are not general obligation bonds these are sales stocks bonds so does not require a vote from the public um this is just a public hearing um and then uh, in november they expect it to close right around november 29th so september 12th public hearing november 29th closing bids go out at that point because they they know what they have. And uh, I talked to Chuck Williams after the meeting on Tuesday, and he said that he anticipates uh, constructions to start early in 2024.
0: Doug McMurdo, editor at the Times Independent. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Late last month, the Bureau of Land Management reopened a public comment period for a lithium exploration project near Canyonlands National Park. Mining on public lands works differently than oil and gas leasing. Moab Sun News reporter Allison Harford took a deep dive on those differences in their latest edition. She speaks with Molly Marcello about their coverage.
4: So I was really curious about how mining actually works on BLM land because it's pretty complicated and there are a lot of different laws that govern it, and so I talked to um, Rachel Wooten, who is the public affairs specialist for Moab BLM, and also Dave Powles, who's the Moab field manager, and um, who was also a geologist with the BLM, and he said that he's seen a huge uptick in requests for lithium exploration. Mm-hmm. So. The way that it works to mine on BLM land is really anyone can um, submit a request to explore for minerals and then mine for them. And that process is governed by the general mining law of 1872, which declares that all valuable mineral deposits in public lands are free and open to exploration. So like any kind of hard rock mining, like copper, silver, gold, lithium, uranium, um, all of that is covered by this law and it means that anyone can apply to try to find these minerals on BLM land and also that they don't have to pay any royalties on them.
1: Okay so I am a LLC mining company and I want to mine lithium. I can go out on the landscape and stake a claim and start before I get a much larger permit to actually develop that mine.
4: Yes, yeah, the exploratory process, which is what's happening right now, requires a much smaller environmental analysis. And so it still requires that companies do a plan of operations which shows you know kind of their whole schedule and how much they think it'll cost and also um, for this specific project the plan of exploration had to say like where the company is going to be storing things and um, what exactly their process is going to be and then after that the BLM will do their own environmental assessment to test like You know, is this going to impact any wildlife or plants or um, like what's the noise implications and things like that? So then the BLM will publish this environmental assessment. People get to comment on it. Um, But if it's approved, then, yeah, these companies can just go ahead and explore for minerals. So this project was actually originally approved in September 2022. When the BLM first finished environmental assessment, but then um, it was appealed by the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance who argued that the BLM hadn't considered a reasonable range of alternatives and also failed to consider water quantity Mm -hmm. because lithium mining takes a lot of water. Um, And so that's kind of been the timeline of this project. But yeah, really any
1: company is allowed to try to explore for minerals on public lands. So earlier you said that there are no royalties involved. Can you expand on that?
4: Yes. So oil and gas companies have to pay some of the money that they earn back to the BLM if they're doing oil and gas on BLM land. Um, But for hard rock mining and these um, hard rock minerals, they don't have to pay any royalties because of that 1872 law that says that public lands are free.
1: So, you know, when people say mining is really different from oil and gas, this is what they're talking about. Yeah, this
4: is definitely what they're talking about. Um, And lithium is Really interesting. Um, it's kind of stirring up a lot of debates right now because lithium is really important for electric car batteries because it's a very lightweight mineral and it's um, it can still store energy. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of this toss up of like, is it better to mine for lithium here? And use it in electric cars because there is this big push for electric vehicles in the U.S. Like there are, you know, federal rebate programs. Um, or is it better to ship in our lithium from like the three biggest countries that are producing lithium right now are Australia, Chile and China. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. only has one lithium production facility that is like actively producing the mineral And it's in um, Nevada.
1: You know, you mentioned that this is one big company based out of Australia, but there are others who have claims in our area. And it really is because of, like, the geology here that there's likely a lot of lithium and also, like, bromine, which, you know, is a big thing right now, too. Yeah, yeah. This company is going to test for lithium and bromine in these wells. Um,
4: And it also, Anson Resources, which is the Australian parent company of A1 Lithium, Um, has over 2,000 claims in southeast Utah. And many of those are in Green River, where in May, the company purchased another like 0.4 miles of private land right alongside the Green River with plans to eventually build a lithium mining production facility. Mm. So this company is staking a ton of claims in this area, and they think that lithium is going to be really profitable. And I will say something that's really important to keep in mind with the lithium project right now is that this is just an exploration project. So all they're doing is testing these two wells to see if they could mine for lithium. And if there is enough to be profitable or that the company decides they want to go for, then that is going to be an entirely separate process to approve a
1: new environmental assessment for mining. I'm glad you mentioned that. And what's happening right now is there's an open public comment period, on this exploration project.
4: Yes, and I also talked to Rachel Wooten about um, how the BLM addresses comments, and so she said that they try to go through and address every substantive comment that is made in this comment period, Um, and so those comments bring up an aspect of the environmental assessment that hadn't been mentioned. So uh, the SUA one, for example, last December brought up water quantity, And so she said like substantive comments bring up a recreational use that maybe the BLM didn't know about or didn't mention in the environmental assessment. Um, Like maybe there's an animal that lives there or a plant that's really important there. And she said that sometimes people do want to voice opinions in their comments, which she still appreciates because she likes knowing people's opinions on things. But um, really, the BLM, because of this general mining law, opinions can't really sway what they do. And so it has to be environmental assessment comments. Mm -hmm. And um, Dave Powell's also said that um, the BLM never looks for these mining requests, like they're never putting out bids or anything like that. They just always um, receive them. But there's never like a certain number that they have to hit.
1: And that strikes me that, you know, maybe it was your line of questioning there too, but like anticipating some controversy and already the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance appealed, you know, the first version of the BLM's approval of this project. So, you know, there's probably going to be some more fights ahead, I guess.
4: Yeah, definitely. Especially kind of for what this means for Southeast Utah, in general with this company staking so many claims here. You can comment on the BLM's National NEPA register, which is at eplanning.blm.gov.
1: Thanks, Allie, for this thorough deep dive into mining and then the lithium claims that are outside Canyonlands National Park. Um, moving on, there's a fun profile in the Moab Sun News this week. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, so I recently learned
4: that An eye surgeon who works at the Moab Regional Hospital flies his personal plane to serve Moab because he's based in St. George, Utah.
1: So we talked about this briefly before we started recording and this is like so delightful to me that there's a traveling doctor and he's flying a plane to uh these rural communities i guess it does remind us that we are more rural than we think right
4: yeah yeah he was really fun to talk to because i was really curious about if he was a doctor first or a pilot first um and he said that the two things really happened at the same time he is his name's ken lord um And he does really specialized eye care, so he's an ophthalmologist, which is a specialized eye doctor who can diagnose and treat eye diseases, perform eye surgery, and also fit eyeglasses and contact lenses. Um, So he's based in St. George, and the drive from St. George to Moab takes nearly five hours, but the flight takes a little bit under an hour, which means that his round trip commute is two hours instead of 10 and really makes it possible for him to be here. So Ken is an army veteran. And he said he had this time between being in the army and going to med school where he had three months. And he was like, what am I going to do with my three months? And then he remembered that he's always wanted to fly a plane. So, you know, being this smart person he just went and got his private pilot's license Um, and then he took the next step and he um, got his instrument rating which would allow him to fly at higher altitudes and further distances and that took nearly six months of flying and studying and he was in med school and so it was kind of this complicated process but he kind of as he was earning this bigger license and as he was in med school he was wondering you know like What if he could fly to clinics and provide care? And he said it was this really romantic dream of his that all just kind of came together. Um, So the opportunity came up to practice in Moab after he had established himself in St. George, but he knew that this like 10 hour round trip was kind of out of the question. Um, But then he had a chance to buy a plane. So now he owns a Piper M350 aircraft and he flies himself in a small team once a month.
1: So he, you know, had it in the back of his mind that he did want to be a doctor who would fly around and um, perform eye surgeries or meet with patients. That's so interesting.
4: Yeah, it's very cool. So he comes to Moab and he also goes to Eli, Nevada and Page, Arizona. And in Moab, he has really busy days. So he and his team typically see 50 to 60 patients and they conduct 10 operations but sometimes they'll stay for two days and recently um, he said there's been a backlog of surgeries that require him to stay an extra day so I was really curious about like rural care across the country and I learned that in 2019 the association of american medical colleges ranked utah 49th in the nation for access to primary care we just have a lot of rural counties like 25 of utah's 29 counties are considered rural so it's really hard for people to get care here um and i think it's really cool that we have this person who flies a plane to get here but it's also you know, kind of tricky that the only way that we can access this care is because Ken Lord happened to learn how to fly
1: a plane. Right. (laughs) Great point. Like the one side of the coin is, oh, how quirky and romantic that we have this doctor flying around to all these different towns. And then the other side is, wow, we don't have primary care as we should in rural Utah. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, our hospital
4: is amazing. And um, Ken said it's really great that the hospital can accommodate him and the team. And he feels like very supported um, by them. And he also said he really loves being able to come to Moab and provide that care to people.
1: Yeah, what an interesting article that's highlighting some real needs in our community. Anything else to say about it? Yeah,
4: um, I asked him about what the flight was like. And he really got so excited. And he said, you know, he flies in the morning and he described the morning air as just amazing. But then he said the return flight can sometimes be pretty temperamental and bumpy.
0: Allison Hartford, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. And that's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News Podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU Community Powered Radio.